Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Uh, One of the cases we are involved in is Missouri v. Biden, and uh, we represent uh, plaintiffs who were uh, thrown off Twitter and Facebook and places like that for uh, things they said about the vaccines and about the response to COVID, Um, most uh, of which are now have been shown to be not only not misinformation, but absolutely true. Uh, and so we've been in this case, and as, as those of you who followed it know, we've been trying to get a preliminary injunction in the Western District of Louisiana, and the government has been fighting tooth and nail, not on the uh, merits, really, but just trying to stop giving us information. Just like the previous segment with Peggy, they don't want to let us know what happened. Uh, but the judge has given us a lot of discovery. I've, I've talked, talked about the deposition of uh, Dr. Fauci, um, and I, I've explained how we're try- we have been trying to get Jen Psaki uh, also um, to be deposed. Um, and I'll talk about that in a minute because they've moved from mandamus, which is uh, it's an extraordinary remedy where you go to the appeals court before the discovery is even done because it's so terrible that you're going to have to answer questions. Um, and you try to get the, the court overruled. But I'll talk about that in a second because another development has ta- happened. We uh, deposed uh, FBI, uh, a uh, FBI agent named uh, Chen, uh, and we asked him about all these things. And he was he did say that yeah, they they told Twitter often, you know, what their concerns were. As I, I think is the way he put it. But the the real issue is after that deposition, come to find out from the Twitter files that have been released, that not only were they in contact with the FBI all the time, but the FBI not only told Twitter what to do, but it paid Twitter millions upon millions of taxpayer dollars to take people off of Twitter. So you could be paying taxes for money that went to throw you off the social platform. Now, the, the, is that just an employee salaries or that's actual it, money paid to Twitter? It was paid to Twitter for the time of their I don't know. Look, I've only seen what's in the Twitter files. So I didn't I don't have the receipts, but apparently it's for the time of the Twitter employees. Gotta bring receipts, John. To, yes. <laughs> to, to to it's to take the it's to get the um time of the people you're uh uh pressuring to take things down. I see. So essentially you can't have the excuse that we're using up your employees' time because we're going to pay you for that. Right. That's exactly it. And uh, I think that I've been doing this for a long time. I didn't know they were paying the the. Now, the other reason that's important is is that taking money from the government gets you closer to being a state actor. Right. Well, sure. Right. It's it, well. Who else do they give money to that isn't the government contractor? That's right. I I I. This is what I'm I'm wondering about because we we have been talking about government contractors in in my first segment. Um, usually, there's procurement. I mean, there's it's it's its own body of law, so I don't know the whole thing. But how who would a vast body of law? Yes, exactly. So I don't know enough about it, but I 
to to just opine, but it does strike me as that's an interesting thing. Oh yeah, please send the three million to Twitter. Um, but but we'll see. I mean, it it's really uh, an unusual disclosure that not only was the FBI. Uh, so the we we don't although we're helping the case and we we didn't have any clients who cared about uh, the the suppression of the Hunter Biden um, laptops and any connection with Joe Biden that had that has not that was not part of our part of the complaint. But that but was this money limited to just time spent on the Hunter Biden laptop or did this cover? We don't know yet. OK, so it's every, all the FBI contacts. There might be things other than that. But it does strike me that um, it, it's an extraordinary effort on the part of the FBI here. And what you see from uh, this this uh, FBI agent named Baker is is he's all over the place, and uh, and he's now then then he's over at the social media companies after he leaves the FBI. General counsel of the FBI. Yeah, he I mean, he, he leaves the FBI. He heads to Twitter, and then the FBI is paying Twitter to take people off of Twitter that the FBI tells them to take off of Twitter. That's right. And that's not state action? It's, Give me a break. It's of course really, it is. It's incredible. It's incredible. So um, so this is, I think, a big a big revelation um, that, that money changed hands. Stunning. Yeah. Follow the money. Yeah. And, and um, you know, it wasn't like, here, I've paid you for the copies you gave me of the people. It's $3 million for all your employees' work on this. And that there was that there was three million dollars and more of, of employee work tell, shows you I, I've I've ex explained before the vast amount of contacts, but that also shows you the vast amount of contacts right there. Well, and, sure. I mean, what's the hourly rate of these employees? It can't be. I mean, fifty bucks an hour would be right. high, I would think. I mean, right. People who are doing this. Yeah. So uh, it it so is the, the it just yeah compute the hours there. <laughs> That's a lot of hours spent taking people off of Twitter. It is. So this this will unfold. We we have um, further depositions. In fact, um, one goes on as we uh, as we do this program right now. Um, but uh, I think that we will probably we have Jen Saki scheduled for January thirteenth, and we're gonna um, have to wait for the Fifth Circuit as well. So what happened? I, and I'll that I'd catch up on this and I'll catch up on this because it's very interesting. So we had a number of employees, uh, federal employees uh, who are Apex employees. They're, you know, very close to the president and you only get them under special circumstances. And they, and Judge Dougherty thought those special circumstances applied. So he ordered it to happen. The government then moved for mandamus for those three and they asked why, you know, written discovery wasn't good enough for these guys and certain other. And, and they asked about um, timing. Why do it before a motion to dismiss? And so it went back to the district court and the district court said, and the reason was because the government had opposed written discovery. OK, that was the reason. But all right, fine. So we go back and uh, the court, issue, the district court issued an order. All right. You, for these couple of guys you can try written discovery but if i find that it isn't responsive because written discovery is notoriously oh, object to this or vague or whatever um so he says if that happens i'm ordering these depositions is basically what he says in the order and he explains that hey look this case has been going on since may where's this where's this motion to dismiss <laughs> you know that's why we're going ahead with the preliminary injunction so uh so Jen Psaki tried first to quash the, the uh, 
Ina in Eastern District of Virginia, which I told you about. And uh, Ivan Davis was having none of that. And and uh, and he went through everything Darity had done and said, you know, not only don't, uh, I don't think I have the power to countermand it, uh, but I think it'd be bad if I countermanded it. And look at all the things he did. So I, I think that motion to quash uh, <laughs> gave a lot more uh, judicial authority to why it was necessary. But nonetheless, the government ha- and, and Jen Psaki have... Uh, Move before the Fifth Circuit for mandamus to hopefully get some kind of order on on uh, stopping her deposition. Uh, but they're in a pickle because they've told the court, the government has told the court over and over, we have no idea what Jen Psaki knows. Oh, we can't re- re- reproduce what Jen Psaki knows. Only Jen Psaki knows what Jen Psaki knows. So the current uh, White House spokesman could respond to our written queries. You know, we did it all in writing. We didn't we, we, we put in all the writing and said, hey, well, we want to know about these statements. And, and guess what? Nobody knows anything until, until they move from mandamus when they say, well, you could have written uh, requests to Jen Psaki, this former government employee who's not a government employee and is working for the media right now. So uh, they've changed their tune. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that that tune change is a little too, too little too late. Um, but it is it is amazing what the government will go through not to let you know what happened, right? They're not sure. they're yeah. not arguing and saying we could do anything we want. They're or arguing, that there's no there there. Yeah, they're saying, uh, hey, look, uh, we don't have to answer any questions. Right. It's for us to know and you to not find out. So um, I think that uh, we're getting we're getting close um, on a number of matters. We we've uh, deposed the the uh, head of the uh, CDC data contacts with all these social media. And she was very candid. Hey, yeah, we wanted to make sure the messages we didn't like didn't come up. So I have at, a question for at, you. At, 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 uh, good, right. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I don't want to derail you if you want to no, get no, to no, something else. But, no. but my question is, uh, when, I, when I go on Twitter, which I try not to do, but when I go on Twitter, I, one of the things I see over and over again is, well, this was the Trump FBI doing this. So clearly it's not a problem in, in the sense that because – it was the Trump FBI uh, t- going on Twitter, taking out something that was presumably would have been helpful to Trump. Somehow it's all OK. Like, what's your response to that sort of argument? Well, it's like it's like uh, Comey releasing that they're still investigating Hillary's emails. Right. And, and, and the Hillary people are all upset about that. So now the, the FBI gives a free one to the other side. <laughs> I mean, that's not how it, it works. It sort of looks like it, that. it's not how it works. But also. I believe that uh, this is an example of something where people talk about the deep state, and I've always had some skepticism about it. Um, but this is the sort of thing whereby they had had so much, and this is, I, I think, the full-blown attacks that they suffered about not doing anything about social media in 2016, sort of um, within their group, within their internal group, the the just really spurious argument that somehow the Trump the the uh, Trump campaign did something different from what the Obama campaign had done on social media. It was the same thing. They just didn't like the result, but they got so much abuse that they're like, oh, we got to make sure that nothing on social media has ever, uh, you know, blamed on us for not stopping it. So there's that. There's probably some partisan uh, uh, animus towards Trump as well, I would think. But I think it's because everyone they know was yelling and screaming about social media and how the FBI didn't do anything and 
and probably Russia, Russia, Russia too, right? So they paid $3 million. At $50 an hour, that's 60,000 hours spent taking people out of the court. Well, anyway, I will keep your prize. Welcome back to Administrative Static. John Vecchioni and Mark Chenoweth with you. Uh, John, I wanted to update the listeners on the Cato Institute v. U.S. Department of Education case that we are bringing uh, in the District of Kansas Federal District Court in Topeka. This is, this is our student loan case where we're suing the Biden administration over its uh, unlawful attempt to forgive half a trillion dollars in student loans based on uh, based on wording in a uh, in a in a statute called the Heroes Act that is not about blanket forgiveness uh, of student loans at at most it's about forgiving the loans of uh, of soldiers who you know, might be uh, overseas in you know in an active war zone or something like that it certainly doesn't extend uh, to folks who uh, who are not heroes and have never seen I mean, the, the idea that, that this statute is enough to support this is, uh, is, um, uh, is belied by many things, but including the fact that Congress didn't appropriate funds <laughs> for the statute. And if they had thought that this was something where the Department of Education was going to be able to forgive a half a trillion dollars in loans, one thinks that maybe they would appropriate uh, funds under the statute, which they've never done. And, uh, uh, and one of the things that isn't talked enough about, I think, in this case is the fact that if an authorization statute without any appropriations is enough for the government, the executive branch to act, then why do we have appropriations for anything? Once you have the authorization, the government should just go spend the money. But that's not how it works. You have to have appropriations, too. You have to have authorization and appropriations. So even if the HEROES Act here is considered authorization, which it's not. There has never been an appropriation uh, under this statute. So I think that's a real problem. Anyway, that's not uh, what this week's filing was about. What happened this week is that the government filed its reply brief in support of their motion to dismiss the case or transfer the case to Washington, D.C. Let me take those in reverse order. The government is, is arguing for transfer to D.C. because it says a large part of what happened in this case happened in D.C. It's where the decision was made by the department and so forth. Uh, we argued, look, you're giving, you're forgiving millions of dollars and, and tens of thousands of loans in Kansas. That should be enough. Uh, it can't be the case that, that all these things have to be brought in California or whatever jurisdiction uh, has the most. And Cato's incorporated in Kansas and it can sue there if it wants to. And the government is saying, no, 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 no. You know, you have to sue where we came up with the plan and so forth which is a little odd to me on, on a few grounds, but including the fact that they're currently defending cases in Texas and, uh, and a case in uh, Missouri. Uh, and so Texas and Missouri are okay, but Kansas isn't. Uh, it just, I think they're being hyper-technical here about their approach to venue because they would like to be uh, in, in DC. 
but you know what? If, uh, if the court transfers it to D.C., we'll fight them in, in D.C. Uh, but I think the case belongs uh, in Kansas where it was brought. But, the, but I think that the bigger, uh, the thing that the government spends more time on in its brief is its argument that Cato doesn't have standing uh, to pursue uh, its claims. And I think that there's a, a fundamental disconnect here on the government's part because it, it keeps trying to say that, uh, that our theory of standing is based on competitive in injury, which is right, but that uh, the government hasn't done anything uh, to regulate any market in which Cato competes. Well, that's not right because the market that Cato competes in is the market, is the labor market for talent. That's the market. And I think that was pretty clear in, in Cato's uh, brief. But they're trying to say- And, and mostly the college educated. The college educated, that's right. Uh, the college educated labor pool is the one that we're, that we're talking about. And, uh, and to say that they're not regulating that is, is wrong because what they're doing is they're forgiving student loans in that market. And we are, uh, Cato is the beneficiary of a different congressionally approved uh, lawful constitutional student loan forgiveness program. They're coming along with this unlawful one that undermines the lawful one. How, how that's not uh, interfering with the labor market in which Cato is competing, I, I just don't understand the government's argument there. Um, I think that they're trying to use fancy language to suggest uh, that there isn't a competitive injury uh, where, there, uh, where there is one. They suggest that competitor standing has to do with providing benefits to an existing competitor, but it does provide benefits to Cato's existing labor market competitors. All of their labor market competitors who aren't, uh, who, who, who don't currently qualify under the public service loan forgiveness program are suddenly put on not, not even an equal footing are put on a better footing when Congress had made the decision to put Cato and other public interest employers on a better footing than those other folks. And they've taken that away. They've flipped that entirely. And, and the whole idea was that it was that uh, for Congress's program was that people could go into government or nonprofits and they didn't have to go to, uh, you know, uh, Wall Street and make a billion dollars to uh, pay off their loans. That's right. That's right. But the other thing that the government says here, which I, I find, uh, uh, well, well, uh, we'll see what you think about it, John. The government says, well, look, all we're doing is forgiving more loans. And the PSLF program forgives loans. This program forgives loans. These are complementary programs, John. Yeah. <laughs> because if what you're concerned about is people being able to work in public interest employment, then of course you just want all their loans forgiven because then they'll be able to work in public interest employment. Now, so there's no, there's no injury here. Now, obviously that's insane. Because, <laughs> I mean, that, no, that was the, my reaction to the idea, the idea that it's complementary when you have um, when the Congress has privileged one group of employers, which we can argue about whether that's good or bad, but that's what they did. Right. They did it on purpose. They said they were going to do it. They, they argued about it. They they passed the law. They got it signed by the president. And now. There, the this other pro just to be clear, this, Cato didn't get it no. passed into law and signed oh, by the president. Oh no, 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 no! <laughs> Cato would fight it tooth and claw, no question, guys. But but the fact is, but once it's there, but, you but know. the fact is, it, it came into being in a constitutionally prescribed manner. And this other, and I'm using quotes here. Uh, it, this I see your air quotes with your fingers this, over there. This complimentary uh, program <laughs> by the executive takes away the benefit that Congress has given out. 
That is what's happening. They have they have decided, and also it is also you talk about moral hazard. Congress made a decision that they want to give some loan forgiveness, but they don't want to create moral hazard of people um, just taking out loans that they're never going to pay back and not do anything. You have to do something to get your loans paid off. That's that's all the loan forgiveness programs of Congress. We can argue whether you have to do enough or is it terrible, is it good or what, but you have to do something. It is avoiding moral hazard, and this is not. It's a big something, too. It's 10 years and 120 payments. Right. I mean, that's a, that's a serious commitment uh, to, to take, as particularly early in your career, because if you if you graduate from college at age 22 and you work from age 22 to age 32, in a public interest capacity, that's that's a real commitment. It may be difficult for you to, uh, you know, to to change career tracks at age thirty-two, right? You know, so it's uh, it's it's quite a commitment. And the idea that this program uh, is complementary, I think, I think in order to make that case, you have to make the case, which they tried to do in their opening brief, that that the PSLF program wasn't intended to benefit employers. It was only intended to benefit employees. And from the perspective of an employee, I think it's probably true that it's a complimentary program that like, why do I care who's benefit? You know, that's I, not who's suing, you know? Yeah, but that's right. It's not who's suing. And I think we made a very convincing case in the opening in, in our uh, brief that, that uh, Congress was acting for the benefit of public interest employers. That was, that was who they were targeting. Uh, and the way that the statute was set up, those are the only employers who can benefit from the program. So it's pretty clear that they were targeting them and not just uh, the employees. The other thing that's that's annoying about this uh, brief, John, the government in its opening brief had suggested that a stay of the case was not appropriate. And so in our response, we said, hey, great, we agree with the government. A stay isn't appropriate. So, you know, do do what you will, judge on standing and on and on uh, on transfer. You know, we we. We believe we have the stronger of the argument on those two points, but at least, you know, we all agree that a stay isn't appropriate. Well, wouldn't you know it, uh, the government's reply brief t- t- uh, changes their tune. And now they say that uh, that a stay is appropriate. And they say, John, that after their brief was filed, uh, the Supreme Court granted cert in uh, Brown v. U.S. Department of Education and Nebraska v. Biden. I'm going to have to go back and look at the date on that. Uh, Brown v. U.S. Department of Education was December 12th. That definitely was after they filed uh, their initial brief. But I'm not so sure about Nebraska v. Biden. I'm going to have to go back. That was December 1st. And uh, I don't remember when their opening brief was filed, but I thought it was also December 1st. So they should have known at the time that they filed uh, that 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 cert grant had happened. So I'm I'm a little skeptical there. But in any event, just the fact that they've changed their tune here uh, on the stay uh, they, they haven't explained. So one of the things we told the judge is, look, the Supreme Court's going to look at this on the merits, but we have a different theory of standing. We should kick our theory of standing upstairs to the Supreme Court so that it has all three theories of standing in front of it so that it increases the likelihood that the court will reach uh, the merits. And uh, I thought that that we were in agreement with the government on that. And now the government's decided that it uh, that it doesn't want uh, this case uh, up there as well. I think I think because this is a strong theory of standing and the, and the government doesn't want to have to combat this theory of standing. It would rather take on but, the cases that are already up there. But let's look at it from a long term. They're, they're repeat players here. Uh, it, it, let's say the, the Supreme Court says, uh-uh, you don't have standing, you, you other folks. Then our judge is not going to hold off anymore, right? 
And so this program that they want to implement, this complimentary program, uh, <laughs> could be stayed again. So, so these people don't get relief. It should be, if the government believes in its position, it should want to get up there because it wants to kill all the birds with one stone. You would think, but I think what, uh, what it figures is uh, if it can defeat the theories of standing that are up there now, then maybe it can super quick forgive all the loans before our judge has a chance to enter any sort of stay. Uh, in our case. I think that's what, uh, and if they're able to get this transferred to DC, so we have a, a new judge who hasn't even familiarized themselves with the case at all yet, it might be even harder to get uh, a TRO or, or any kind of, uh, of stay uh, from, from that judge. But in any event, uh, the case is now in the lap of a Judge uh, Krause. We will uh, we'll have to wait and see uh, what the judge decides to do, but we'll certainly keep you uh, apprised.